Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, and welcome to Intermezzo number four. In our most recent episode, we were covering some of the foundations within Malevich's theory. We also took some time to reflect on the architect Ludwig Hilbersheimer's comparison of Malevich to Plato. Hilbersheimer considered the comparison between the two to be centered upon how both men's work pointed beyond the immediate senses into a kind of eternal or super-real realm. We had brought up the additional point that a close reading of Plato reveals an emphasis on transformation. This certainly is another commonality between suprematism and the ancient philosopher. Interestingly enough, just as we saw current events add to a discussion of mechanical reproduction we had started earlier, as mentioned in our episode 33 on Walter Benjamin, we weren't the only people digging into Republic lately. Plato has resurfaced as an item of political discussion in the punditocracy, though, sadly, few commentators are willing to challenge the editorial on the turf of the ancient texts. Andrew Sullivan recently wrote a piece for New York Magazine discussing the 2016 U.S. election called Democracies End When They Are Too Democratic. You can find a link to it in the show notes within the podcast feed. Tap on the Lapsus Lima logo as it is playing full screen in your app, and the link should be there. We usually don't cover current events on a history show like this, but the potential for discussion here was too great to avoid. Beyond my direct response to the politics of the piece, the reference to Plato reveals something very important. Sometimes, reading an ancient philosopher and reading others who write about him will teach you more about the times of the interlocutors than those of the source. Beyond the simple coincidence that both Sullivan and this podcast were bringing up Plato is the more interesting aspect that we were both focusing on transformation. We were using the philosophy to understand the process of change rather than eternal models. In both cases, the nurse of becoming we discussed last time, the locus and matter of change that consists of the ternary rather than the binary interpretation of Plato, is brought to the fore. It seems that as the 21st century is developing, our analytical outlook is closer to the morphological approach of suprematism than it is to the rationalist, structural approach of De Stiel. Next week, we will begin our examination of Malevich's morphogenetics, something the Bauhaus distanced itself from, even as it greatly influenced other strains of architectural thought. But for the moment, 
We could not ignore spending some time reacting to Sullivan's thoughts about the morphology of politics, the changing shape of history flowing through the institutions that so many have, for so long, considered as stable. I share with him the point of view that democracy is not permanent, and that the U.S. is closer to dictatorship than it has ever been. But the how and why of this nearness is where we differ. Sullivan seems to prefer an enlightened oligarchy, somewhat of a Ciceronian perspective, while I would support a direction more along the lines of a not-getting-murdered Tiberius Gracchus. Sullivan's point of departure from Republic's discussion of forms of government is in noting how Plato writes of Socrates arguing that tyranny arises from no other constitution than democracy, severest and most cruel slavery following, I fancy, the extreme of liberty. Not mentioned by Sullivan, but immediately prior to his selected quote, this is all within the area of line 564 of the Plato, for those of you following along at home, is a sentiment that could have come straight out of a Taoist text. In truth, any kind of excessive action is wont to lead to excessive reaction. This is the metaphysical assumption behind Sullivan's argument that an excess of democracy is leading to tyranny. From the interpretation, then, that our supposedly extreme democracy is what is leading to coming oppression, it would follow that extreme oppression is what causes democracy. His logic is sound, but fallacious. What is asserted as generally true about opposites is ignoring important details in this particular instance. The specific mistake he makes is called affirming the consequent. Instead of, if A then B, A is asserted, therefore B, which is solid, we have if A then B, B is asserted, therefore A, which is incorrect by being presumptive. Let's have an example in plain English of this fallacy, and you'll see where the error can creep in. If it rains, the street will be wet. The street is wet. Therefore, it rained. But while it almost never rains in Lima, I walk on wet streets every day. That logical fallacy pans directly onto Solomon's argument of if the U.S. has too much democracy, there will be tyranny. Since its founding, the U.S. has developed a lot of democracy. Therefore, a lot of democracy causes tyranny. Besides this being flawed logic to begin with, 
I find it to be counterfactual. Sullivan remarks that democracy has increased steadily in the United States since its founding. He then observes that it is odd how long the democracy has lasted. This longevity does indeed fly in the face of his model, but it is no testimony to the fate of the United States. It is a flaw in his model. The fault is not in our stars. Sullivan notes that the Founding Fathers had read their Plato, and so had set up checks against mob rule. This is likely true, but even more to the point, they had also read Livy and Plutarch. The history of the Roman Republic was more in their minds than the theory of Plato. The Constitution has separation of powers, not philosopher-kings. It is a credit to Plato that what he wrote so compellingly describes the transformations of culture within a late-phase democracy. But the founders, and their followers, were always pushing the states closer to Rome than to Greece. To temper the political theory with some political history, what led to the downfall of popular rule in Rome was the explosive force of classes that were steadily denied political and economic franchise. Julius Caesar would have never had the fuel to rise as far as he did if the merchants and equestrians had not been actively kept out of political power by the senatorial class. The very recalcitrance, the resistance to popular rule that Sullivan argues for, is what produces the deleterious and revolutionary resentment he decries. It is not some kind of mystery, as Sullivan supposes, that democracy in the United States has lasted throughout periodic expansions of liberty and enfranchisement. It has lasted specifically because of this expansion of liberty. Restricting the scope to only recent history, imagine if the Civil Rights Acts of 1957 and 1964 had never been passed the confrontations between activists and segregationists would have become more protracted, more violent. A year as turbulent as 1968, or even more so, may have happened as early as the summer of 1964, and could have put self-described extremist Barry Goldwater in the White House. He who approved of tactical nuclear weapons and remarked that sometimes I think this country would be better off if we could just saw off the eastern seaboard and let it float out to sea. Stepping further back, what would have happened to the question of slavery if only large landowners voted for president, as was the initial circumstance instead? of the post-1820s shift 
to universal white male suffrage. In fact, in recent years, restrictions on voting have increased. The Voting Rights Act has been neutered by the Supreme Court. Money now legally equals speech. And for three elections in a row, from 1992 to 2000, the man who became president did so with less than 50% of the popular vote. U.S. citizens abroad have been declared enemy combatants and executed by fiat. For all we know, this podcast and the fact that you are listening to it may be registered in a counterterrorism database. Hello, NSA. Merely tracking social connections for our own protection. Looking from 1971 onward, the year in which the 26th Amendment that made the voting age equal to the age of military draft eligibility was ratified, I am hard-pressed to agree with Sullivan's view of a continually permissive increase in democracy. He poorly conflates cultural populism with political liberty. What is currently happening in the United States does, however, follow Plato's model of an extreme becoming its opposite. I agree that the nation is ripe for tyranny, but it is not extreme liberty that causes it. Let's read a bit further on past what Sullivan quotes to see what Plato remarks upon when he recalls Socrates' arguments about how a tyrant comes to power. It is clear, Socrates said, that when a tyrant is begotten, he springs from this root of presidency and from nowhere else. Then what is the beginning of the change from president to tyrant? Is it not obviously when the president begins to follow the story which is told concerning the temples of Zeus Lycaeus in Arcadia? That he who tasted the human flesh which had been cut up with the other sacrifices must, of necessity, become a wolf. And he who is president of the people finds a mob more than ready to obey him, and does not keep his hands from the blood of his kindred. As the populace expands, if the franchise of a constitution refuses to expand with it, as in the case of Rome's immigrating Italian allies, or indeed, if the enfranchisement contracts, citizenry increasingly becomes a resentful mob. If they are deprived of any semblance of representation, which is exactly what Congress has presented to the whole country, and Obama to the eyes of conservatives, the force of the newly formed mob becomes ever more ready to line up behind whomever promises revenge. 
And make no mistake, this is not about, nor caused by, any one individual. Not at all. The public pressure behind this has been building for more than a decade, and unless relieved, it will find expression in one demagogue or another. Before Caesar ended the Republic, there was the flurry of Marius and Sulla, ideological enemies who likewise both suspended the Roman constitution. From the perspective of small-r republicans, each of those three men were avatars of that platonic wolf. There has been much glee and loathing from Democrats and Republicans respectively about how and if the Republican Party will split or destroy itself. The fact is, it won't do either. It will transform, as it has several times already. In days of yore, the Republicans were left-wing and the Democrats conservatives. The Republican Party has gone through a series of crust displacement shifts in the times of Teddy Roosevelt, Warren Harding, and with Harry Truman's defeat of Thomas Dewey. It will survive. I'll even go so far as to say that the two-party system will survive. What disturbs me is an inevitable choice between two outcomes. One is that the United States will constrict liberty, social, economic, and electoral, resulting in widespread political resentment in the electorate, inevitably putting an anti-constitutional demagogue, a wolf, in the White House. The other is that things will stay exactly as they are.